Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to a bonus episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the TLS podcast. Last year, summing up the latest collection of essays by the novelist Zadie Smith, the TLS reviewer Gretchen Gertziner described the work as a clear, many-voiced manifestation of a voracious mind that ranges through the visual arts, literature, philosophy, natural science, race and family. This voraciousness is on show in the clip you're about to hear from a widely reported event recorded earlier this year at Hay Festival in Colombia. In conversation with the journalist Carolina Sanin, Smith explores ideas around localism, servitude and historical luck. She began, though, by discussing her relationship with writing. I intend to write a perfect 110-page existential novella and I end up writing a 450-page uh, heavily populated uh, piece of comic fiction. So it, it's, never, it's never what I plan, you know. And I have a great envy for other traditions, but I think one of the truths of being a writer is that you're limited uh, in a certain way by your childhood, by the books that were put in front of you. And I, I would have been a very different writer if I had uh, grown up in Paris, you know. But I grew up in England. And I read Dickens, and I read Shakespeare, and I read Tolstoy, and everything else that came to me in the way of a more uh, global taste or eclectic taste came later. But it's very hard to be influenced when you're 35, you know? Most of the influence happens when you're nine. (laughs) And so I was formed by books that, if I could do it again, I wouldn't choose those books. (laughs) But I I can't do it again. So... um, uh, I, I find writing very difficult in the sense that I, I have a lot of uh, self-loathing as I write, you know. Um, but I, I guess what's perhaps unusual is I, I, write, I write through it, yeah. Yes, um, well, your novel, as I said, covers the world, and it literally does. It takes place in London and then in Africa and in New York. And uh, it has mostly like this vitality that has to do with the power to travel and to change places. And it's one thinks of of, uh, globalization and globality and uh, when when looking at it, but at the same time it it deals with what means, uh, what it means being from somewhere. Right. Being uh, not localized, but local. 
and uh, having grown up somewhere. Right. Uh, what, what do you intend to say about not origin, but, but uh, the relationship to place, to a place? Well, I, I, while I was writing um, Swing Time, I, I was also writing shorter things. And I, I wrote a short story, uh, which is set in the future, you know, way in the future, a kind of speculative fiction thing. And I, and I realized later when I, when I read the short story, is that they had, it, though it seems from a different universe from Swing Time, the, the, the thing which is the same is this, is this idea that to be local in, in the contemporary consciousness is to be disadvantaged, right? Part of the idea of wealth is that you can move freely, that you're not tied to anything. And uh, in Swing Time, there's a kind of global pop star character who is the kind of physical reality of that. She doesn't live anywhere. She doesn't belong to anywhere. And she considers that her glory, really. Um, and in, in my science fiction story, it was kind of an extreme version where anybody who's left in a place in the, in the story, in this case, England, is the disenfranchised. You know, the people left in this, in this modern England are the people who couldn't get away as the water rose and as this kind of collapse occurs. Um, so I, I recognize that as a new kind of wealth, just as the same as, you know, if you went to the 17th century, uh, to be fat was to be rich. Now, supposedly, to be fat is to be poor. You know, you have to watch these transformations of values. But, it, but I guess when I'm writing, I'm trying to think, uh, trying to resist the idea that these, these values are, are reality, you know? They're ideological. And there's a lot to be said for the localized, the rooted, someone who is present in the community, someone who, you know, so much contempt is thrown in the idea of being born, living and dying in the, in the same geographical space. But for thousands of years, that was, that was reality. I, I was, um, it's still reality. It's still reality for people. millions of people. Um, and in my own life, I, mean, I was born and brought up in a, in a council state in, in um, northwest London. And then when I made money, uh, I, when I was young, I bought a house opposite that council estate, <laughs> which is a classic example of a localized mind, right? And I, the other I side of the street. Right, I couldn't <laughs> imagine anything outside of, of Wilsdon. And I can remember being interviewed by journalists at the time, I guess upper middle class journalists, who found it essentially comic what, what I had done, you know, because... And I, I grew to be a bit ashamed of it, but then as I got older, I thought... No, you know, that was my vision of a good life, was that neighborhood, my friends, my family, um, and the contempt which is poured on that, on that vision of a, of a local life, or a life with limits, more than anything, um, is what interested me. Yeah, the other question would be, of course, if there are some places more local than others. Right. If being from London, no matter what neighborhood in London, is the same as being from some corner in the Andes, if you're right. as much as... A Londoner, as you can be an Andean peasant from that piece of land, you know? But, but that's Well, I, I don't think so, because some cities are mythologized. London is one of them. New York, we were just talking backstage, is another one. Even people resident in New York, as, as I am, f frequently feel themselves to be living in a movie. You're, yeah. you're not living in a physical space. You're living in layers of ideology and mythology, um, which can have quite comic effects, you know, quite often... When I'm New York, in New York, as we visit each other's apartments, I'm in NYU housing, so I'm rent-controlled like various people in the city. But you can go to the apartment of people earning, you know, 
the, the, the kind of 1% and their apartment is no bigger than the council estate flat I grew up in. So you know people are living in ideology when they're willing to pay uh, amounts of money that are obscene, to even repeat on the stage, to live in a box yeah. of the same kind that I grew up in. So for me, that kind of... Um, those extremities make you wonder about the, even the rationality of that kind of wealth. You know, there's a deep insanity in those situations. Yeah, definitely. There is also a way in which you belong to a time, and that's also one of the topics of your novel, right. I think, which is called, ironically, swing time, because the novel doesn't take place at that time that we know as right. swing time. But there are a couple of little girls that then grow up, and they live in that, in that time. Right. And the way in which they live in that time is they watch dancing. They dance, but for me, the most important part about that activity was watching dancing. Right. And so when I was reading the novel, I wondered what makes a time. Like, it's not historical events. No. And, or not only, or not necessarily the, the most important feature, but there is an atmosphere that, that, that makes a time feel like that time, right. like swing time. And it may be music, of course, but then there are many periods in history from, uh, from which you don't, you don't have any recordings. And then there is dance, and um, that's what the novel uh, seems to suggest. There is the way people moved at a particular right. time. But I, I wanted you to, to talk about the relationship with a period in time that is not your own, but you come from that period of time because you come from all the periods of time that, that right. were before. And that is not nostalgic necessarily. It's an affinity, but... Uh, right. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, uh, nostalgia is a very deep temptation for a writer, perhaps particularly for a British writer. Um, what I was trying to, to get at, and I... I, I I realize now as I'm older that maybe this was a strange feeling to have as a child, but I always had the sense that being born in 1975 in the place I was born in represented like unprecedented historical luck. I always had that sense. I, I would read, um, you know, I used to read the encyclopedias a lot. This is obviously pre-internet. And I remember very keenly looking at pictures of people being disemboweled in London streets in the 1500s as a punishment, being drawn and quartered, which is when you uh, open up the body, take out the guts, and drag a person, usually uh, by a horse, through the streets. And I, I remember thinking very clearly, wow, I, I'm glad it's not 1512. I always had, I always had that sensation of, of luck, of historical luck. And, and of course, it's, um, it was, it's in, intensified by your identity, I suppose. Both my parents were from a long line of, uh, you know, servants, one way or another. So my father's mother and their family worked in a big house downstairs. And my mother's mother was uh, like an orderly in a hospital. So they came from this long line of um, profoundly dispossessed people. So my perspective uh, in, in our estate was very skewed. I, I really felt uh, rich. I, I felt really lucky. It was only when I, I moved out of my childhood and realized there was a, a scale of richness um, 
that I understood where I, where I stood in British life. But in my childhood, I was under an illusion that we were doing really well. <laughs> we, were, we were really living the dream, yeah. And that scale of richness is infinite too. Right, it's infinite. Infinitely um, down and infinitely up it goes. And uh, yeah. And that brings me to the other thing I wanted to talk um, about with you, which was uh, servitude. Right. It seems to me that it's somehow or for some reason re very relevant right now. You saw Roma, the film by Cuarón. Right, yeah. And then there is the favorite, the Giorgos Lantimos right. latest film, also about serving right. someone else. It's also about two women, one serving the other one, right. actually a triangle of two women serving another one. And in your novel, there's a couple of friends, of female friends, right. um, that grew up together. And then there's another couple of friends. One of them becomes friends with another woman but it's also her servant, it's her personal assistant, right. but that's a name for a servant. And so I, why do you think it's becoming so relevant as a topic now? Because maybe even more than race and class, right. now we are thinking in terms of uh, master and servant again. I, I think, in, in my view, it's, it's the return of the repressed. So what, what happened in the 80s and 90s, we convinced ourselves that we'd come to I mean in the West, and particularly in Anglo-American culture, that we come to the end of history, that we were in a, a social democracy in which something which had held true for thousands of years, the existence of servitude and of hierarchies of people, had basically disappeared. You know, I mean, I know from living in New York that, that the servitude, it stopped it being in your house, but it, of course, is everywhere. There are nannies and tutors and fitness instructors, and there's around each individual woman in New York, there is this invisible army of people working for her. And the relation is supposedly uh, one of equality. Every now and then we have these monstrous um, stories in New York, you know, a nanny murdering children or some other rebellion of a servant class. And everybody is suddenly awakened to the realization, oh, this is a city of servitude. Uh, in, my, in my own life, when I first had children, I'd go into the playground and realized that I, as far as everyone was concerned in the playground, I was another Jamaican nanny. All the nannies are Jamaican. And, and I'm with these children, and I must be another one of this invisible class. And, and so then you're in a strange position. Are you meant to assert, your, oh, I'm not the servant class. I am the mother in this case, over your sisters, perhaps your cousins, your second cousins. So this kind of invisible servitude, I think, um, has been deeply repressed. And then... Even in practical terms, I, I wrote a story about uh, an actual um, slave being kept in a suburban house in Willesden. And, and that story came from a news article that my mother showed me. I was home and she said, you know, down the road from us, there was a woman being kept as a, as a slave in this house with her passport taken from her, with her wages kept. That's a kind of explicit expression of it, but it's also... Um, around us all the time. And then I was thinking too, as I wrote Swing Time, of the servitude of one country to, to another. And the idea, perfectly obvious idea that we repress all the time, that when you sit down to dinner, when you get dressed, there is an invisible army of people making these clothes, providing these, this food, in the case of your iPhones, producing the cobalt which is in the phone. Children mine that for 
a few dollars a month. So the thing that we hold as our great um, symbol of, I don't know, technocratic futurism and liberation is literal servitude in your pocket. It takes a lot, I believe, to not look at that. Zadie Smith talking to Carolina Sanin at Hay Festival Cartagena. A recording of the full conversation along with the entire Hay Festival archive is available to subscribers to the Hay Player online at hayfestival.org. As for the TLS, we'll be back at Hay Festival in Wales this summer, so go to hayfestival.com for tickets and information. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.